He's worthy to tell us, to command us what our lives should be. His heart towards us is unchanging, an ever-flowing stream of love and grace towards sinners. Who wouldn't want to follow that Savior? This is just the the pre-sermon sermon. Hey, let's pray, and then we're going to open the Word together. Lord Jesus, You are worthy of our lives. You are worthy to follow when it doesn't make sense. You are worthy to follow when it looks like following You is taking us towards the cross. Lord, You're worthy. And so help us this morning as we open Your Word to, to believe what we know we should believe, to To see you and love you, knowing that we should see you and love you. But Lord, we need your help. We're desperate for you. We're dependent upon you. God, right now, we just cast ourselves down. Knowing that if you don't come and work, if you don't come and move, we're just wasting our time. So Lord, please come and attend your word this morning. Attend your word in a powerful way that would move in our hearts. Lead us towards repentance and faith and and worship God. Lead us to your heart this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and worship. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Today we're going to be transitioning to the second half of the book of Mark. We've made the turn. We've gone over the hump and we're going to be headed towards the second half. And the second half of Mark, we're going to be calling a series, we're going to be calling it Follow Me. And where we got that from is last week in Mark chapter 8 on Easter Sunday. Uh, I don't think I've ever had my toes stepped on more on an Easter Sunday than I did last Sunday. As Jesus told us what following him meant in Mark 8 verse 34. And I want to read that for us again this morning. Mark 8 34. This is what Jesus said. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So let's genuinely ask, uh, who would sign up for that? Who would pick up the hammer and the nails and tack themselves to the cross to suffocate and die? Why would anyone follow that path. Typically, we follow people that we like. We follow people that we respect. We follow people who have something in life that we want. And so we follow them hoping that in following them, it will make our lives better, that that somehow we will be able to become who we want to be by following them. And Jesus has called us to follow him, and he's been strikingly clear about what following him means. Following Jesus is a cross-taking and a self-denying business. But before we recoil and jump back from taking up our own cross, Jesus wants to give us a picture of what it might look like, of, of what we stand to gain if we will follow him, if we will deny ourselves, if we will take up our cross, what we stand to gain And that's why we have Mark chapter 9, where we're going to be today. Uh, Mark chapter 9 is kind of like a brochure that you get before you go on the tour 
or kind of like the previews that you watch before the movie, or maybe the, the, the best illustration is it's kind of like a construction model that you have built to scale before you break ground. It's a picture of what's coming in the end, but it comes before the end. It's a little snapshot of what Jesus is promising us if we will choose to follow him to the cross. And this is the one word. The Bible summarizes our future. The Bible summarizes the end. The Bible summarizes what is ahead for us if we'll follow Jesus with one word. And that word is glory. Glory. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Mark chapter 9. And we're going to jump back up to verse 1 where we left off last week. And we're going to read all the way through verse 29. This is Mark 9, 1 through 29. Follow along together. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And when Jesus saw that, a crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. So where is Jesus taking us? Jesus is taking us to glory. How is Jesus taking us there? We're going to look at four things, four things that Jesus has done to get us to glory. First, Jesus achieved glory. If you had been just reading the book of Mark up to this point and you had never read it before, you didn't know what was coming after, you might be tempted to think that this was the end of the story. Uh, as we read verses 2 and 3 again, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about why, I might, why my, I might say that this would be a great ending to the story. Let's read it again. It says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. This is Jesus. He is the king of the kingdom, and he has conquered. He is the champion. He takes his uh, closest three disciples. He, he takes a journey up to the top of the mountain, and all of a sudden, he starts to glow bright, radiant, white. And you might be thinking, wow, he did it. He accomplished it. He did what he came to do, and now, now God is honoring him by, by glorifying him. The word here for transfiguration is what we get our word metamorphosis from. Uh, the only way I understand metamorphosis is how that, that creepy, crawly little caterpillar somehow turns into that beautiful butterfly. That fuzzy little thing that crawls around all of a sudden goes in and pops out, and now it flies, and it's colorful, and it's beautiful. That is metamorphosis, and that is kind of what's happened to Jesus here. See, Jesus was just an ordinary guy. You would not have been able to pick Jesus out of a lineup. He was, he was average at best. And in this moment, he goes from being an average, ordinary uh, man who was at many times like swept to the side. Now he is radiant. He's beaming. He's shining. He has become glorious. So is this the end of the story? <clears throat> well, yes and no. Uh, if by end of the story we're saying that the narrative is over, then no, this is not the end of the story. But the word end is used in different ways. When we say, is this the end of the story, and what we mean by that, is this the aim? Is this the goal? Is this the purpose? Then yes, this is the end of the story. This is what God made human beings for. God created human beings for glory. I want to try to prove it to you from some other scriptures. When the Apostle Paul describes our tragic collective failure 
in Romans 3, 23, this is how he puts it. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice that it doesn't say fell from the glory of God. It says fall short of the glory of God. Glory was God's goal for humanity, and every single one of us since Adam and Eve have fallen short, except for one. One man has entered into the glory of God, and his name is Jesus Christ. But I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to leave any room for doubt this morning. I want to show you a string of passages that show, that clearly say, that God's goal, God's design for you and for me is glory. And I think we're going to have them all up on the screen so you can follow along with me. The first one, Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And they, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and then we'll skip to 4.16 and 18 from 2 Corinthians. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of what? Glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of? Glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I don't think you guys are as excited about this as I am. <laughs> glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, to this, this is a purpose statement, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to where? Glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is the shocking, staggering reality of the Bible that God's design for us is to glorify us. And if that doesn't make you feel a little bit weird, then I don't know what will. We exist to glorify Him, and yet He's saying He's going to glorify us. When I think of the transfiguration, I don't just think of the metamorphosis, the butterfly. I also think of a bride on her wedding day. You know, it's just an undeniable fact. I've been to a lot of weddings. It's an undeniable fact that when she comes walking down the aisle, she is glorious. She is radiant. She is glimmering. And what we're learning here is that that is what God made us for. He made for us to shine. He made for us to be radiant, and it starts first with Christ, first 
with Jesus and then through him, us. So why do we need to see this? Why is this helpful for us? Why do we need the brochure? Why do we need the the construction model? Here's, Here's a main reason that I think. Seeing this picture protects us from all the counterfeit offers to glory out there in the world that we're all surrounded by. No amount of facial cream is going to usher you into the glory that God created you for. No accomplishment at your job is going to achieve the glory that God made you for. We are constantly invited and bombarded by advertisements that promise glory, that promise what we deep down know we were made for, and yet time after time after time, it never delivers. Only Jesus can get us to our final end, can get us to our final purpose, because only Jesus has actually achieved glory. He can give it because he achieved it. But let's get more specific. Secondly, let's get more specific about what exactly this glory is. Secondly, Jesus revealed glory. Jesus achieved glory. Jesus revealed glory. Let's read verses 4 through 8 together. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This week we... uh, went and had a little eye test done for Benjamin, and one of, one of the things that was a part of the eye test was a, a 3D image, and it reminded me of watching 3D movies. You know, you put the, the glasses on, and it's really exciting. It's all cool. The images are, you know, coming at you, and it's like, whoa, this is awesome. But then when, if you take your glasses off and try to watch a 3D movie without the appropriate glasses on, it just looks weird. It, it looks like they messed up. It looks like they didn't know what they were doing when they created it. This passage is sort of like that. It, it kind of looks weird. It, it kind of like, we're like, what exactly is happening here? But the lens that we have to look through to understand this passage is actually the lens of the Old Testament. So many times we try to pick up the New Testament to understand what's going on in the Old Testament. But here we see that it's just as important that we pick up the lens of the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. <clears throat> so the first thing that happens after Jesus is transfigured into glory, is the appearance of Elijah and Moses with him on the mountain. The reason that Moses and Elijah appear is because Moses is shorthand for the law, and Elijah is shorthand for the prophets. In other words, between these two men together, you have a picture of the entire Old Testament scriptures. It's like the Old Testament has come to have a party with Jesus. Now, here's a little side bar comment about how the Old and the New Testaments work together. The Old and New Testaments are conversation partners. They do not contradict. They do not present different pictures of God. They do not present different 
uh, images of how we are saved, the Old and New Testament are both necessary and they both work together. Moses and Jesus are friends. They are really good buddies. And that's how we should see the Old and the New Testament fitting together. Moses had had a similar experience to this, uh, this transfiguration. One day, Moses had gone up on the mountain to meet with God. He climbed the mountain. There was a cloud. There was a voice coming out from the cloud. And when Moses came down the mountain, guess what? He was shining. But it wasn't his whole body. It wasn't his clothes. It was just his face. And I think the Bible wants us to understand that there is something similar about Moses and Jesus, but there's also something very different about Moses and Jesus. Moses was a glory receiver, but Jesus is a glory revealer. Moses and Elijah, they spoke for God, but Jesus speaks as God. The second thing we see and it's kind of something that we see inadvertently, we're trying to understand this passage, is our good friend Peter. Uh, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Mark, you know that uh, Peter has this, this uncanny ability to think that he is in charge uh, under any circumstance. And so once again, he sticks his foot in his mouth, he, he throws something out there, and it's easy for us to just immediately write Peter off, but I want you to see something. Peter isn't completely wrong. He's just slightly wrong. See, when Peter suggests making tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, he's got one thing right. Peter knows that ever, ever since the Exodus, when God led his people out of slavery, when God had met with his people, he had always established a place of meeting. And that place of meeting was a tent. It was the tent of meeting or the, the tent of witness. It was the place where God and man would meet together. And Peter's saying, hey, this sort of feels like the kind of place where God and man are meeting. This sort of feels like the kind of place where we should set up a tent. We should set up a tent of meeting. But this is what Peter didn't understand. He didn't understand that there was no need to set up a tent of meeting because Jesus Christ himself was the tent of meeting. Jesus, in his very flesh, in his very body, was the place where God and man meet. In his very person, in his very flesh, Jesus Christ was the place where the wonder and the holiness and the glory of God was revealed. There was no need for a tent of meeting because they were standing in the presence of the tent of meeting. And then a third detail I think this one really gives it away. Mark tells us in verse 7 that a cloud overshadowed them. In the Old Testament, when God had led his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, they were to follow him. And the way they knew how to follow him is that God manifested himself in the form of a cloud. Whenever the cloud would move, the people would move. And whenever the cloud would rest, the people would rest. And it's like right here on this Mount of Transfiguration, God is speaking to us. He was speaking to the disciples and he's speaking to us. And he's saying, my son has followed me perfectly. Everywhere I've told him to go, he's gone. And every place I've told him to rest, he's rested. He's done what Israel was kind of doing, except he's done it without grumbling and complaining and disobeying all along the way. Jesus is in perfect step with the Father, so much so that at the end of verse 7, when the voice, when God speaks from the cloud, he says, 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. If we truly want to be who God made us to be, the only way is to listen to Jesus. Okay, let's, let's just answer the question. What is this glory? What is this future? What is the end to which God has called us? When we look at Jesus, what we see about our future, what we see about our end, is that true glory is to be fully and completely consumed with God. True, actual, real glory, the glory that you and I are headed for, is to be fully and completely consumed with God. I hope that's exciting to you. That is what we're all about. If you thought you were coming here for something else, I'm sorry to disappoint. Filled with God, that is the pinnacle of life. That is what it's all about. That is the scandal of the gospel. That in Jesus Christ, He brings God down into humanity. And in Jesus Christ, humanity is lifted up into the very life of God. So let's just make it practical for a second. I can't help it. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Ask yourself this question. Who do you actually listen to most? Who is actually setting the agenda in your life? Who is actually carving the path that you are walking on. Listen to him. Jesus is leading us to glory. Listen to him. Now, if all Jesus came to do was to achieve glory, and reveal glory, then at this moment, on the top of the mountain, he would have just gone up and ascended into the glory of his Father, which which he will do. Not long after this, that's exactly what would happen. The glorified Jesus would ascend back to his Father, having accomplished everything that his Father had asked him to do. But why does he not? Why does Jesus grab his three disciples and start walking back down the mountain. This leads to our third point. Jesus supplied glory. Jesus supplied glory. He achieved it. He revealed it. And he supplied it. Let's read verses 9-13 through 13 together. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus knew that while in one sense he had achieved glory in his own humanity for himself, but that if he was to supply glory to others, something more was needed than perfect obedience. Something more was needed than a perfect record. That's where this tent of meeting imagery becomes even more vivid. I tried to share just a little bit about the tent of meeting. It was this place where God and man would meet. And there's something odd about it. Maybe, you, maybe when you hear the tent of meeting, you think of maybe like a church. Maybe you think of like a, a place where people would congregate. And it was that. But there's something really odd about this place. That all the time, constantly, perpetually, sacrifices were being made. I mean, imagine walking into church this morning and on your way in through the front door, there's a burning, a burning animal. You know, imagine coming in to, to sit in your seat, getting a little closer to the stage, and you see their blood dripped on the floor. This was the tent of meeting. This was their place of worship. That, that if God and man were going to come together, if God and man were going to have a relationship, something was going to have to die. See, back in Genesis 1 and 2, when you read through the creation account, what you find out is that the, cre- the original cre- creation was actually a, a copy of the tent of meeting. There was this Garden of Eden, which is, was the holiest of holy places, where man and God could meet, they could spend time together, they could be in one another's presence. It was glorious. It was what God had intended. But then when, God, when Adam and Eve sinned, God exiled them out from the Holy of Holies. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And you know what they had to do? They had to hike down the mountain. The Garden of Eden that was on this mountain of God's presence, Adam and Eve were cast down. And God put there an angel with a flaming sword indicating that no one could come in. That the the price... The penalty of the sin, the penalty of rejecting God was death. And so that's what creates this great dilemma for us. If we are to be made glorified, and what it means to be glorified is to be consumed with God, then we've got a big problem. If I could say it this way, death stands between us and our purpose Because sin stands between us and God. And that's why when the disciples asked Jesus their question about Elijah, he's kind enough about it, but then he asks a question of his own. He says, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? The reason that Jesus didn't just usher up into glory on the Mount of Transfiguration is because he hadn't come just to earn glory. He had come to bring sinners to glory with him. And the only way that he could 
take sinners like us and hike us back up the mountain into God's presence is for Him to die in our place for our sins. Uh, A few years ago, this will be funny uh, because he just walked out of the room. Uh, A few years ago, Luis and I, uh, Luis Sanchez and I, were supposed to meet up. This will be great. I hope he walks back in while I'm telling the story. Um, A few years ago, we were supposed to meet up for for coffee one morning. And I uh, got there significantly late. Uh, And I don't know what it was. It was like I just had this gut instinct that I needed to, like, make up for it. And so when I went up to order my coffee, I asked the cashier if she would also give me a $10 gift certificate. And so when I sit down, you know, to have our coffee, I hand him the the gift certificate. I'm like, hey, man, I'm really sorry for being late. Like, what in the world is that? (laughs) There's just this, this inner thing. I think we just understand that when we've offended somebody, when we've wronged somebody, that is right to make up for it. Uh, I mean, that, that particular instance is a little bit embarrassing. I think it, it you know, probably um, unnecessary. But take that and then amplify it into our relationship with God. When you offend God, what measure of sacrifice would make up for that offense? What amount of offerings and on top of offerings, on top of offerings, could actually appease an infinitely holy God? The only sacrifice that could have been enough was the sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus Christ himself. And I just beg you, if you're here today and you're still trying to make sacrifices, you're still trying to make atonement on your own, God has made a way back into his presence And it is clothed in the obedience of Jesus and covered in the blood of Jesus. If you come by faith into the presence of God, clothed with Christ, He will welcome you with open arms. It's the only way. He had to suffer. Because it's what our sin deserved. We intentionally this morning wanted not just to end right here. We wanted to look at Jesus, yes, going up the mountain, but also wanted to see what it was like when Jesus came down the mountain. Because that's where we live. That's the world that you and I inhabit. And so forth and finally, Jesus left glory. Jesus left glory. As we finish this journey today, I want you to notice how as we read through this narrative again, how we are surrounded by three great enemies. We are plagued by the flesh. We are antagonized by the devil. And we are pressured by the world. 
these three great enemies terrorize us. When David wrote Psalm 23, he had the flesh, the world, and the devil in mind when he categorized life in this world as the valley of the shadow of death. We were made to be up on the mountain. We were made to live in God's presence. But the reality is we live in the valley. And it is into this valley that Jesus descends. Let's read it in verse, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It is into this world that Jesus descends. The world of bickering and arguing. The world of faithlessness and prayerlessness. The world oppressed by the devil. It is into that world, the world that you and I live in, that Jesus came down. So what does it mean to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus? Not, not up on the mountain, not in the perfect life circumstance that none of us have, but in the everyday mess, in the muck, in the valley of the shadow of death, what does it look like to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus? I see three things that I want to pull out from, from this short narrative. First, sincerity, crucifying self-image by learning to be honest with Jesus. The man who called out to Jesus was desperate. We've been encountering desperate people all along the Gospel of Mark. 
And when Jesus expresses the fact that all things are possible for one who believes, what comes out of this man is this rare exhibition of genuine honesty. The man cries out and he says, help my unbelief. And that is the kind of sincerity that Jesus loves. To admit our faults, to admit our struggles, to admit our sin, and not just to do it privately, but to do it openly, not caring who sees or what happens. That is the kind of honesty that puts to death the self-image that we are so desperately trying to maintain. Second, faith. Crucifying self-confidence by learning to trust Jesus. Crucifying self-confidence by learning to trust Jesus. When the man answers the question about how long the boy has been tyrannized by the Spirit, he says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, notice how that statement gives him away. He doesn't quite know yet, doesn't quite believe yet that Jesus has the uh, ability to help him. And that's why when Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes because Jesus can. He always can. It is never a question of whether Jesus can or not. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. But I love how the man responds. It teaches us something about faith. It teaches us something really, really fundamental about the Christian life and about the Christian faith. When he says, help my unbelief, we're learning that even the most basic thing in the Christian life, which is faith, we can't even do unless Jesus helps us. We are so utterly dependent upon him that there is not one good thing that can come from us unless he does it in us. There is no ground whatsoever for self-confidence. What do you have that you did not receive, the Apostle Paul says? What in your life can you take credit for? Help our unbelief, Lord. The most basic thing. Help us. And then third, prayer. Crucifying self-sufficiency by learning to ask for help from Jesus. Crucifying self-sufficiency by learning to ask for help from Jesus. I love how the man and the disciples proved to be the contrast. The last two verses of our text today, verses 28 and 29, read, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, How convenient. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. See, the disciples had gone out. They had had some victories. Jesus had sent them out, and they had cast out some demons, and they had healed some people, and they were feeling pretty good about themselves. They were feeling pretty good about their spiritual life and their spiritual power. I'll tell you what, guys. You know one of the most dangerous places in your life? is when you've just had a victory 
when God has actually answered your prayer, when God has actually come through for you, and the more time goes by, somehow it gets twisted in our minds that, that maybe that was actually our power. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just kind of smart. Maybe I just understand how life works. And like these disciples, we start to think, oh yeah, I, I've got that covered. Yeah, I, I've, I, I've mastered that level. And we stop, to, we stop crying out to God for help. We stop asking for Him to do what only He can do. But don't you love that? Don't you love how simple denying ourselves is? I mean, when I think of denying myself, I think of people that like, go overseas as missionaries. You know, I think of like, you know, super awesome, crazy Christians, the, the kind of Christians that we like read the stories about and we ooh and ah about. Jesus is saying, hey guys, denying yourself can be as simple as just praying. Stop trusting your own power. Stop trusting your own ingenuity. Stop thinking that you can think your way out of everything, which is what I do most of the time, the way I think most of the time. Saying denying self could be as easy as saying, help! Taking up our cross doesn't mean trying harder. Taking up our cross doesn't mean graduating to some superhero version of Christianity. Taking up our cross means being okay with decreasing as Jesus increases being okay with admitting our weaknesses so that by His grace, Jesus can become the power at work in us and in our church. So, Jesus has gone up on the mountain. We've seen His glory. We've beheld God glorified in Jesus Christ. We've seen the construction model I think that when we see that picture and then when we hear Jesus call us to follow him towards his cross, we now can realize that he's actually not asking us to wreck our lives. Jesus is actually just asking us to acknowledge that our lives are already wrecked. He is not trying to snuff out all the things that make us happy and all the things that bring us joy. He is trying to show us that all those mountaintop experiences we've had all the highs we've experienced in life, they have actually just bankrupted our souls because we thought we could trust them to satisfy us. He is trying to teach us how to get to glory. And he's saying the biggest thing in the way is self. But this is what I know. I know that you and I we live down in the valley. We live in the muck. We live in the mess. We live in the tension, the arguments, the frustrations, the political craziness. This is where we live. This is down here. We don't live on the mountain. We live in the valley of the shadow of death. And that's why we have to acknowledge today that following Jesus is not only hard, it is so hard that we can't do it in our own power. Following Jesus, dying to self, is a miracle. And Jesus wants to do it in us and for us. 
This is the end, guys. This is the end that I'm hoping over these next 10 or 12 weeks as we talk about what following Jesus means, as we talk about more about denying ourselves and taking up our cross. This is the end. This is the picture. This is the future if we'll follow Jesus. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is a future worth dying for. That is a future worth slaying the self for. I pray you'll join me in following Jesus to the cross. Let's pray. God, we know that we have terrible judgment when it comes to what is glorious, what is beautiful, what is right in the world. God, we have blinders on. Our hearts don't see clearly. And so, Lord, we cry out to you this morning, help. We know what we should believe, but we need you to help us believe, to help us see to open up our eyes, to, to take the calluses off of our heart. God, we want your glory. We want your preferred future for our lives. So we cast ourselves down. We look to Jesus. God, help us to listen. Listen to him. We worship you now. In Jesus' name.